The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology, faster than thought possible, to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Monday, everybody. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. It is cold. It is snowy. It is going to be miserable the next few days. But look, temperatures back to 40 by the weekend. So hang tight. We'll get through this together. Coming up on the show today, got a lot to talk about, actually. Tom Brokaw stepped in yesterday when he made remarks suggesting that Latino immigrants need to assimilate more quickly into U.S. culture. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. And also coming up on the program, we have a settlement a settlement in the gerrymandering case here in Michigan. We'll talk about what that means. It means that it's not going to be settled quite yet. I have a feeling we're going to court on this one, and I'll talk a bit more about that. So stay with us for the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Got a good one for you. Hey everybody, happy Monday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me on this day, uh, the day before, I guess. All the schools are closed today, despite the fact that there is no snow that is yet on the ground. Uh, it is going to get cold, we know that, but we'll survive. Uh, but we could get a bunch of snow. Looking forward to it, actually. It just means I get to shovel some more, which is always my favorite thing to do. Uh, hopefully you have a good sarcasm detector. Either way. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about a place that's a little bit warmer, and that would be the American Southwest. Lots of discussion that is taking place over whether or not a border wall is a good idea, something that we should consider here in this in this country. And, of course, there's been obviously a ton of debate now that the government has been reopened and the president has basically given everybody three weeks to come back to the table with some sort of a deal or else he'll declare a national emergency and start construction on the wall. Now, granted, there's a lot that would go into it before that takes place. But we do have three weeks in which to actually start having a somewhat, uh, re, you know, responsible debate over border security, what that means. And I've got a few ideas on that. But I want to start uh, first talking a little bit about um, what is at the root of a lot of this. And again, a lot of this, and I've been saying this time and time again, is based in fear, fear of the other, fear of people coming across the border from especially south of the border and the stoking of that fear by certain politicians that have been working this issue for a long time, trying to convince people that the only way to be secure is to build a physical barrier between our two countries, suggesting that everybody from MS-13 to ISIS is trying to come across the southern border when the evidence, frankly, doesn't support that. And when those facts get pushed out of the way, using this notion of these caravans and, and a few thousand people that are trying to get here from Central America as being an emergency that has to be dealt with, when in reality, most of these people are coming here for the same reason that everybody else ever has, and that's to create a better opportunity for themselves and their family, a better life. We know that's why the vast majority of people come to this country. Now, asylum claims are one thing. People can come asking for asylum. They will get their cases heard. And if they qualify, they qualify. If they don't, they don't. They get sent back. We have been managing the system for a, a long time. And while it's far from perfect, it is something that we've been doing relatively effectively. But the debate is getting messed up on this notion of who these people are and why they want to come here. And for some reason, 
we are unwilling to see a group of people coming across the southern border as being here for the same reasons that our families came to this country whenever they did, whether it was a 100 years ago in the case of my great-grandfather from Bulgaria or several hundred years ago in the case of the other side of my father's family that came here a long, long time ago. But they were all here for the same reason, looking for a better opportunity, an opportunity that maybe didn't exist where they came from. They were either fleeing war, persecution, bad job prospects, In the case of people coming up from Central America, they're fleeing, of course, violence. And the possibility that their kids could be conscripted into gangs against their will and have a life that is going to be woefully short. Nobody wants that. And if they see an opportunity to be safe and create a new opportunity, people will go through whatever walls are put up in front of them to make that happen. And we're seeing that happen right now, but not in the numbers that create a crisis, that constitute a crisis. Immigration numbers are down significantly from where they were 10, 15 years ago. And so it's not like there's some sort of new emergency, some horde of invaders. Uh, It's not Genghis Khan coming across the border to storm our villages and, and basically pillage. That is not what we're talking about here. These are people that are coming here looking for work, looking for better opportunities for their kids. We need to deal with it. We need to figure out a way to make that work. We need to figure out a way for these people to get to the United States and and be successful here, if indeed they qualify to be here. And yes, legal channels do matter, and it's important that people follow the law and try to get here legally. Coming through a port of entry right now is a legal way to do this. You can apply for asylum, get your case heard. They will make a determination. You either get in or you don't. It has worked pretty well. Shutting off the border completely, out of fear, is an irrational response to a problem that has been, um, I would say, dialogued out of proportion. That's my opinion. You may disagree with me, and that's totally fine. I do think that we need to have a conversation about how immigration works. I don't think three weeks is enough time to get it done, but I think that there are certain things that we have to figure out, and I hope both sides can sit down and actually have a serious dialogue about what we need to do. But the problem that I have with this, again, is we are pitting us against them. Americans versus non-Americans. White people against non-white people. Culture against culture. And Tom Brokaw, yesterday, on Meet the Press, had some things to say. Tom Brokaw, of course, was the longtime anchor of the NBC Nightly News. He's now a senior correspondent for NBC. And he was on Meet the Press yesterday talking about what he's been hearing from people when he talks about this issue. So let me give you a little context to the conversation yesterday. They were talking about how people in America feel about this border issue. They were talking about polling data showing that President Trump's idea for the wall is not something that is popular with the majority of Americans, but it is something that is popular with his base. And that's what's driving a lot of this discussion. So Chuck Todd starts the conversation yesterday saying this. He said, quote, the problem is in Wyoming and in South Dakota, they think they need a wall. But in Texas and Arizona, they don't. Making a good point that the people who are actually impacted by the southern border are not clamoring for a wall in huge numbers. And the people who are far away from a border crossing, like in places like Wyoming and South Dakota, not necessarily impacted by immigration at all, are under this impression that this is something that has to happen because we're under threat. Now, Tom Brokaw then responds to this. And here's here's where the issue gets interesting. Tom Brokaw comes in. He said, I know. 
And a lot of this, you know, we don't want to talk about it. But the fact is, on the Republican side, a lot of people see the rise of an extraordinary, important new constituent in American politics, Hispanics, who will come here and all be Democrats. So then we have Tom Brokaw going on, who then talks about racial mixing here. And he said, quote, also, I hear when I push people a little harder, and of course, he's talking about interviewing people and, and talking to people who are, you know, worried about this stuff. He said, also, I hear when I push people a little harder, well, I don't know whether I want brown grandbabies. I mean, that's also a part of it. It's the intermarriage that is going on and the cultures that are conflicting with each other. Uh, basically, that's racial fear and not wanting there to be intermarriage and things along those lines. But then he went on to say this, and this is, this is where I have an issue. And I have an issue with all of it so far, but I was just sort of listening to this and going, Tom, where are you going with this? But then he said, quote, I also happen to believe that the Hispanics should work harder at assimilation. That's one of the things I've been saying for a long time. You know, that they ought not to just be codified in their communities, but make sure that all their kids are learning to speak English and that they feel comfortable in the communities. And that's going to take outreach on both sides, frankly. Now, this notion of assimilation is something that we have been fighting about in this country since the first people came here, assimilating into the culture. Well, the first people that came here as immigrants did not assimilate into the culture. They, they, they borrowed the stuff that they needed from the Native Americans in terms of survival skills, growing the right crops, figuring out what's going to work here, finding ways to survive in a new world. They did that. They took the things they needed, but they kept everything else that was theirs. They tried to force the people that were already here to assimilate into their culture. Whether it was through some of these so-called Indian schools that we had, where we saw students forced to abandon every aspect of their culture, renounce their families, learn English, learn the king's English, and try to become more white, frankly. That is a documented part of our history. And for those that resisted or didn't want their culture to be changed, we saw them pushed further and further out into reservations were killed outright. So we forced people that were already in this country to assimilate. Forced assimilation. Now we're saying, well, everybody else should try to assimilate. But the fact is, when, when immigrants come in large numbers, immigration, they come in big numbers, depending on which countries are, are undergoing problems. We saw massive immigration from Ireland, massive immigration from Italy and Southeastern Europe and Germany, and all these other places, and of course Latin America, and Asia, and Africa, and that, again, migration was not something that was there, that was forced, and again, those people forced to give up their culture to assimilate into this one, forced to do so. Now we want people to voluntarily assimilate. What does that mean? What does assimilation mean? Does assimilation mean learning the language, not upholding your heritage and your culture? That's not the way that this country has ever worked. Anytime we've had large numbers of immigrants that have come in, they have been clustered into certain areas in either cities or different parts of the country. Think Chinatown in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Think Little Italy in New York. Think Corktown in Detroit. Think Greektown. All of these neighborhoods had unique ethnic identities. For a long time, Poletown, Hamtramck, all of these places had unique identities. Look at what's going on in Dearborn right now. Huge population shift, people from the Middle East, a number of different countries, a number of different cultural identities. However, you know, they are assimilating. What do, they, what do I mean by assimilating? They're making a go of it here, but they are keeping 
remnants of their culture intact, and there is nothing wrong with that. Nobody's forcing people to learn Spanish. Nobody is forcing people to learn Arabic or Farsi. Nobody is forcing anybody to learn the languages of these cultures. But is it wrong for the people who have moved here to try to want to keep some of their old life intact, some of their traditions intact, pass on some of the things from the country that they left behind, not always because they wanted to, but because they had to? These things take time. And the first generation that moves here may not learn English right away, but their kids typically do. It's a survival thing. This is not something that needs to be forced. And it's not something that needs to be worked harder at. I'll tell you what, it's hard enough being an immigrant in this country. It's hard enough facing the scrutiny and the eyes from people who are questioning whether or not you truly belong here. Last I checked, most people that come here, the vast majority of people come here are here for the right reasons. They want to make a better life for themselves. They want to give their family an opportunity. And they're working their butts off to make it happen. This notion that everybody's coming in here just to get benefits or have quote-unquote anchor babies is just not right. That's not what's happening. And to sit there and say that people need to work harder at assimilation, I'm sorry, they're working hard enough just to make a go of it in this country. It's not easy to make a living in this country. They will assimilate. They're already moving into our economic system. They're already figuring out that you've got to find a job and get work to pay the bills. They're already figuring out that you need to find some way to communicate with people if you're going to get by. And to say that people need to work harder at assimilation, well, I'm sorry. It's easy for somebody to say like Tom Brokaw, who's a white guy from middle America, you already had the dominant culture. Your family already was the dominant culture. You can sit there and say that everybody else needs to meet our demands, but you know what? We forced our demands on other people that were already here. So who the hell are we to sit there and suggest that other people need to assimilate better? I, for one, think this country is better when we have a rich blanket of diversity and cultures. What does assimilation mean? Does that mean that uh, people have to give up whatever foods that they like? Does that mean that they have to give up the types of clothing that they like to wear or not listen to the music that they like to listen to or read the books that they like to read or speak the language that's natural to them because then they're not assimilating? I have no problem with somebody sitting in the line speaking Spanish to each other. Who cares? And if the clerk at the store can understand them and speak in their language and make it a little bit easier for them, more power to them. Putting signs in multi-languages is not a problem. Canada's been doing it for a long time. They seem to be okay with it. It's not an assault, and it's not an insult to the dominant culture. Anything that helps people get ahead, get acclimated to life in this country, is fine. But they do not have to give up their heritage to do it. And we shouldn't ask people to give up their heritage to do it. Or somehow think if they're clinging to aspects of their culture and their heritage that they are somehow not American. That's what makes this country great, that everybody has an opportunity, that we have this melting pot, this mix of cultures and experiences and lifestyles. That's what makes America great. So we talk about assimilation. That's code for give up your culture and do things that we think are normal. That's not freedom. And if indeed somebody is going to be oppressed as a result of the fact that they aren't assimilating quickly enough, or that they aren't quite American enough for you, then you're the one that has the problem. This country has always, always thrived on immigration and diversity, whether you want to recognize it or not. But enough about this talk about assimilation. 
Last I checked, people are working their butts off just to make a go in this country. And if they're doing that, and it's not bothering you in any way, is it really bothering you when somebody speaks Spanish? Why does that bother you? Look in the mirror. What's the issue here? Nobody's forcing you to learn Spanish. Nobody's going to do that. So Tom, you made a mistake, and I know you apologized for it yesterday. But the damage was already done. Now think about this for a second, too, before we start talking about assimilation. The Pew Research Center, they did a study back in 2013, which showed that a majority of Hispanic adults in the U.S., 62%, either speak English or are bilingual. There's another study from 2017, another Pew study, that found that 34% of the country's Hispanic population was born outside of the United States, arguing that it was inaccurate to cast Latinos as newcomers. And the thing is, the assimilation rates in terms of learning English and participating in the economy are as quick as happened in previous immigrant groups for Hispanic immigrants. There's multiple studies that have shown this. So I don't buy that you're not American unless you assimilate, learn English, and be more American. How un-American is that? What is American is the fact that we have all these different cultures and different people and they somehow get together and we somehow make it work without fighting all the time the way that we have seen in so many other countries across the world over ethnic reasons. We still have our racial issues, absolutely. And we still have distrust and we still have fear. But for the most part, the vast majority of us get along with it just fine and it doesn't bother us. So I think the one thing that we need to do if we're going to make this immigration debate work and we're going to come up with a plan that actually is fair and honest and open and works is to not listen to the extremes on this one. Not listen to the people sowing seeds of fear and not listening to the people that suggest that everything's hunky-dory and we don't need to change anything because we do need to make some changes to make this system more orderly and fair. But the moment that we lose our compassion as a nation out of fear of the other, fear of a group that might not assimilate, or political fear that somehow these people might vote against our interests or your political interests, well, that's when we lose. That's when we lose what makes America great. We're on the verge of it if we do this wrong. We're sending a horrible signal to the rest of the world right now about what we stand for. Personally, I'm appalled at the language that I'm hearing. And I'm appalled that we're actually having a real debate about whether or not to build a physical barrier across the entire southern border. Now, if we're going to start talking about this wall and we're actually going to have a discussion about whether or not it's a metaphorical wall when we talk about different technological improvements we could make, different things that we could do to ensure that we're not seeing the amount of drugs come across the border through the nets, through the checkpoints that exist, those are things that I think are laudable goals. But until we eliminate the fear and the racism from the discussion... We're not going to have a real debate. We're losing sight of what we are. And I'm worried. I'm worried we won't get back there if we do this the wrong way. And Tom Brokaw didn't help yesterday with his note that everybody needs to assimilate quicker. That's just not realistic and it's not fair. Hopefully, some sanity comes back to this discussion. Apparently, we have three weeks to get this done. I'm not sure it's enough time, but we'll see. This is The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor, and The Trip, wise relationship advice with hosts Megan Slattery and Tracy Evans. Deadline Detroit, 
one-stop shopping for all your news. And welcome back to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me on this snowy Monday in Detroit. It's going to be cold, but you knew that already. Anyway, uh, one of the things that I've been following very closely and I've been very interested in is how the state is going to deal with this lawsuit that challenged the constitutionality of the boundaries, the political boundaries that we have here in the state. And I told you last week that it looked like a settlement was looming uh, between new Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson and the federal government on how to deal with this one. And of course, there now is a deal in place. And it leaves certain things off the table, so I'm going to give you some ideas of what's what's going on in this thing, uh, but also to give you an idea of what's to come here. Now, Jocelyn Benson reached the settlement, and she issued a statement as to why she did this. And she said, quote, As the state's chief election officer, I have a responsibility to ensure that our elections operate in a manner that is fair, accessible, and in compliance with the constitutional mandate of one person, one vote. I believe today's settlement strikes a balance between recognizing the unconstitutionality of the 2011 redistricting maps while reaching a remedy that is limited in scope and impact given the length of time these districts have been in place. Now, what does that mean? Well, she's trying to limit it, right? So what's going to happen is uh, the plaintiffs agree to drop the claims that challenge the constitutionality of the Senate and congressional districts along with four state house districts. Now, what happens though is that there will be 11 political boundaries that are going to be redrawn. 11 of them. The 24th, 32nd, 51st, 55th, 60th, 63rd, 76th, 91st, 92nd, 94th, and 95th state house districts. Now, Democrats currently uh, are in control of five of the 11 districts that are going to be redrawn. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is that you're going to have to redraw these lines. That's going to impact other districts. So while you suggest that it's going to be limited to these 11 districts, well, in reality, it's going to have an impact on a number of other districts. And that's what the Republicans are screaming about. They say that this is a Democratic attempt to basically retake the House in 2020, and there's likely going to be a court challenge to this. Now, they're looking for a quick settlement on this, a quick ruling on this consent decree that they've entered into so that they can start work on redistricting for the 2020 election in the House. And this leaves the congressional districts alone for now, and it leaves the state senate districts alone for now, which was important because a number of senators, if they did indeed redraw the senate lines, would have basically potentially been uh, limited to just two years of their four-year term. And that was something that the Republicans were upset about, and, and Benson wants to take that off the table. Now, Benson says that it strikes a balance, limiting the disruption of the political boundaries. Now, interesting though, is that there is no way to redraw these without impacting other lines. I'm not exactly sure how they're going to do this. Now, here's a statement from the Michigan Republican Party, a guy named Tony Zamet, who's a spokesperson for the Michigan Republicans. He said, quote, and this is a a statement he gave to uh, Michigan Advance. He said, quote, this settlement clearly is an attempt by Jocelyn Benson and the Democrats to try and steal the state House of Representatives in 2020. The Democrats know it will be nearly impossible to redraw these 11 districts without affecting countless others, causing electoral chaos. Now, this is interesting. I mean, he's got a point. There is no way to redraw these eight districts just with the current geography that they have. You're going to have to obviously reach into some other districts for some territory, things like that, to make them more fair, less gerrymandered. So what's that going to do to the other districts that border these? How many could potentially be impacted by this? I have a feeling a lot. Now, granted, there's going to be a change after 2020 no matter what. 
Proposal 2, which passed, takes effect in 2020. There's going to be the Independent Citizens Commission that is going to draw the new district boundaries. Now, again, this does take out of question those Senate districts where some of the uh, some of the terms could have been shortened by two years if the Senate district lines had been redrawn. So kudos to the Democrats for taking that off the table to make this a little bit less of a mess than there's going to be. At the same time, there is going to be a lot of commotion in the state house. So you've got 11 districts, but in effect, you're going to have to be redrawing everything that borders it as well. So how's this going to work? I don't know how they're going to be able to do it. And I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of court action. The Republicans are already threatening that there's going to be lawsuits around this. And there should be, I guess, if indeed you don't feel that the process is fair. But interestingly enough, the Republicans are going to get first crack at this since they control the House right now. They're going to get first crack at redrawing these lines. If they do it in a fair way, maybe there's a way to do it so that there's not just obvious harm to one party over the other. But at the same time, we're undoing something that created obvious harm to one party. The way these lines were drawn in 2011, they're entering into the settlement because this case, frankly, was one that the Michigan could have lost given other rulings that have taken place at the federal level looking at places like Maryland, where the Democrats got their hands slapped for gerrymandering there, North Carolina, where the Republicans were guilty of it, and Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which of course changed that House's makeup very considerably after their court ruled that the lines were improperly drawn and illegally gerrymandered. Now, I'm not exactly sure how this is going to work, but it's something that we'll be watching. I just wanted to let you know that they made this deal on Friday. You may not have heard about it. But 11 state house districts are going to be redrawn. But what that means is that the districts of a lot more than just 11 are going to be impacted by this. And so gerrymandering is bad regardless of who's responsible for it. And I'm hoping that whoever takes up this responsibility and does this, does it in a way that makes a lot of sense. Because if you're going to do this before 2020, then nobody's going to be happy. The Republicans certainly aren't going to be happy. But there's going to definitely be a lawsuit on this one. Now, again, kudos to the Democrats for taking the, the state Senate and the congressional districts off the table for now. If that leads to something that is fair and equitable, at least at the state house level, that's not a bad thing. But it's not just 11 districts that are going to be impacted by this. It's a whole lot more. So you may have completely different seats, completely different districts in time for the next election for the Michigan state house, which is happening in 2020. And again, we'll have new districts again for 2022. So, the fun continues. We'll be watching, and as soon as there are updates, we'll give them to you. So then again, just pay attention. Michigan Advance, a good place to look. They're keeping track of this very closely. A new nonprofit news outlet out of Lansing. They've found them to be a pretty, pretty important resource in this day and age at a time when we're seeing shrinking newsroom coverage. So support them if you can. Take a look at what they're doing. Um, MichiganAdvance.com is where you can find that information and a lot of good stuff. So anyway, I wanted to make sure that you were aware of that. This is a big fight that's coming here in Michigan, and we'll see where it goes. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thanks very much for being with me. We'll talk again tomorrow. Lots going on. And stay warm, and don't hurt yourself shoveling the snow. We'll see you tomorrow. Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. 
Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. 